Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here for your viewing pleasure on ADH-TV every week, twice a week, and my goodness, do we have a blockbuster show for you tonight. Joining me this evening are Indigenous academic Anthony Dillon to talk us through how governments can help disadvantaged Indigenous people without implementing an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Israeli parliamentarian Sharon Haskell, who will take us through the tragic events that unfolded in Israel this week at the hands of Hamas terrorists. And we will also speak to the Australian newspaper's Washington correspondent, Adam Crichton, about whether Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s run as an independent for president could split both the Democrat and the Republican camps in 2024. But first, the final curtain. Tomorrow is referendum day, when Australians will cast an historic vote as to whether we enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament into our constitution. Should the referendum pass, it would confer extra rights to one group of people based on race, while handing power to an activist class of Indigenous elites who hate Australia and seek to gut its constitution to wreak revenge on the colonists of over 200 years ago. At least, that's how I'd frame it based on the facts. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and the Yes campaign have attempted to hide those inconvenient truths by painting the voice as an opportunity for the country to unite by accepting this supposedly warm hand of friendship. What this is is a handout of friendship. And when I came to the studio here in Canberra this morning, the first thing that we did was shake hands. That's what you do. This is a handout from the first Australians asking non-Indigenous Australia just to join, just to join with them in something that is a very modest request. However, if you read just a few of the extra 25 pages of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the document that outlines the intentions for The Voice, this modest request reads quite differently. There's nothing modest about it, nor is it a request. It's a demand to implement a new law, different from Australian common law, that would affect and govern only Indigenous people. It goes well beyond the notion of Indigenous sovereignty right into Indigenous separatism. And if history has shown us anything, you don't get much more racist than advocating for racial separatism. In any case, it appears Australians have largely seen through Anthony Albanese's lovey-dovey spin. The latest news poll dropped on Monday and it is dire for the Yes campaign. It recorded just 34% of Australians intend to vote yes, a drop of 2% since the last news poll a fortnight ago, with a no vote of 58%. And just 8% of respondents were undecided. But the salt in the wound of that latest news poll is where the drop in support has come from. Namely, that supposedly surefire group of yes voters, the under 34s. A full 49% of those under 34 intend to vote no, according to the poll, while 42% intend to vote yes. If the poll is correct, what was once considered the all but infallible youth yes vote is no more. And interestingly enough, 42% of Labor voters intend to vote no, 
with 48% to vote yes and 10% undecided. So Albanese hasn't even been able to rally his own political party to offset the no vote. This raises an obvious question, why? Well, it's likely testament to the socially conservative attitudes that are still very much prevalent in Labour heartland. The caucus of the Australian Labour Party is committing political suicide by abandoning its once socially conservative, economically leftist, pro-worker policy prescriptions for identity politics and racial privilege. How have they gone so far off their traditional tracks? Certainly, it's at least in part to do with what I've spoken about a number of times on this show, the woke industrial complex that plagues our systems of governance in the Western world. As to how that relates to the Indigenous voice to Parliament, you need look no further than Qantas. Although the airline continually denies it, a number of prominent figures within the coalition have repeatedly insinuated the likelihood of a quid pro quo between Anthony Albanese and former Qantas CEO Alan Joyce. They allege the Albanese government blocked an application from Qatar Airways to run 28 extra flights into the country in exchange for Qantas's endorsement of the Yes campaign. Now, while that might sound like a conspiracy theory, a recent Senate inquiry chaired by National Senator Bridget McKenzie astonishingly found otherwise. But how much of an influence do you believe Qantas had over this decision by the federal government? Well, and, and that's what the evidence actually showed. Despite the minister, Minister King, seeking to gag her department from providing doc critical documents and answers to questions, um, we were able to ascertain that the government was about to approve the negotiating mandate in January. In fact, the CEO of Virgin uh, was given that sort of intimation by the minister herself in January. But then something changes uh, until July when she ultimately rejects the decision. And what we do know was just before she rejected the decision, the Prime Minister's office agreed that he'd be standing next to Mr Joyce uh, launching the Qantas Yes campaign planes mm. uh, in August. So there is evidence to suggest that Mr Joyce was heavily involved in influencing this decision and what was the quid pro quo. So... Rather than look after the workers by making a decision that would ensure cheaper airfares, as well as injecting over a billion dollars into the Australian economy, Labor appears to have buddied up with a big woke corporation for the sake of some yes branding on a few planes. Wow. Perhaps this kind of behaviour is why, at least according to the polls, Australians are largely rejecting the voice. Honestly, I think it's as simple as the fact the Yes campaign simply hasn't made a good enough argument to get it over the line. In addition to pointedly refusing to release any detailed legislation on what the voice would look like if implemented, the arguments made for the voice have been generally vapid and based in cheesy emotional appeals, whether that's bland sloganeering about being on the right side of history or appealing to white guilt. Either way, this was very much on display during Channel 7's Sunday night episode of Spotlight, in which both Yes and No advocates made their final pitches. On the No side was Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, Senator Jacinta Nampajinpa-Price, of course, and also Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe, who represented the progressive argument for No. And on the yes side was Labor Senator Malandiri McCarthy and, who'd have thunk it, longtime journalist Ray Martin, who claims Indigenous heritage because one of his 16 great great grandparents was Aboriginal. You do the maths. Now, what was fascinating was the studio audience of undecided voters each of which was given a special device which they could turn one way to indicate they were having a positive live response to what was being said, and another way to indicate if they were having a negative response. And indeed, the seven polls, as they called it, 
gave a very interesting live insight into how the arguments made by the yes and no advocates landed with these undecided voters. The result was, for lack of a better term, a slam dunk for the no campaign. In summary, just about every time Senator Jacinta Price made a point, the pulse jumped right up into positive territory. By contrast, the red line barely moved when Senator McCarthy made a point. And at the end of the program, the final results from the undecided voters were in. 53% of them had been convinced to vote no. Just 30% decided to vote yes, while 17% remained undecided. And there you have it. When stacked next to arguments from both the no camp and the progressive no vote, the yes camp appeared vapid, amateurish, and in my opinion, shifty. It was as if Senator McCarthy and Ray Martin were hiding something beyond all that lovey-dovey rhetoric. Now, obviously, we need to take any and all polls, from news poll to the Roy Morgan back Channel 7's live reactions with a very large grain of salt. Polls can always be wrong, which is why all you know voters need to get out there on Saturday to the polls and vote. Do not be complacent, anything can happen on polling day. But if the polls are right and the result is replicated, well, it won't just be the final curtain for the Indigenous voice to Parliament. It might also be the final curtain for Anthony Albanese's Prime Ministership. Joining me now to discuss all of that and more is Indigenous Affairs commentator Anthony Dillon. Anthony, it is so lovely to have you here this evening. Are you doing well? I'm doing very well. It's always lovely to, to be with you, Daisy. So well, it's always, always lovely to have you. I'm thrilled you could be with us this evening. Now, Anthony, why do a lot of left-leaning activists attempt to overcomplicate the issue of closing the gap? I mean, isn't the answer to breaking the cycle in remote Indigenous communities as simple as getting an education and breaking into the workforce, as, as you and others have done? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, to be fair, that's that's simple. It's a little bit more difficult in practice getting people out there, mm. you know, setting up business. But ideally, that's what's got to be done. But I think what prevents it, Daisy, is there's a group of people out there, the, you know, call them the left, uh, the bleeding hearts, whatever you want to, who have this obsession with a traditional Aboriginal culture. Mm. Right? And... You know, oh, they'll talk about cultural sensitivities and we've got to attend to the culture, we've got to make sure we have cultural safety, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, for 98 of, 90, uh, I'm guessing, you know, 90 plus percent of Indigenous people, that just doesn't apply to them. I mean, they're just like you and I. Mm. Um, so, you know, this, this cultural barrier, which the left kind of magnify, makes things complicated. At the end of the day, as you said, we want in modern day Australia... We want kids in school, adults engaging in some sort of service such as jobs, and many Indigenous people are already doing that and they're doing quite well. Um, there's some that's training that we need to get them to be like their uh, other brothers and sisters. Mm, and, of course, the extreme example of that, you know, obsession with Indigenous culture we've seen recently is foster kids who've spent time with non-Indigenous oh. parents being dragged back to their uh, dysfunctional communities because of this, this, this strange cultural relativism. I mean, and that kind of, that kind of behaviour has to end, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, you've, you've just triggered me by talking about that, Daisy. I mean, we're going to do a whole session on this. And one of my concerns is if the voice gets up, we are only going to see more of that, not less. Mm. So there'll this, be this obsession that you've got to have Indigenous kids only with Indigenous carers, which is ridiculous. Kids just need a home where there's love and nurturing, and that comes in all sorts of colours. Mm. Exactly. You know, love, literally, love doesn't discriminate. You know, love and, and family values mm. spread across 
all cultures. So, you know, yeah. why on earth are we, are, do we have this obsession with keeping Indigenous kids in Indigenous cultures even to their detriment? Do you think maybe it's a hangover from the, the guilt about the stolen generation? Look, that is part of it. You get people who are afraid to, um, you know, re remove the kid, place them in a non-Indigenous home. And even today, the, the rhetoric, you know, put out by the um, the left is, you know, every time we they look at these statistics, and I mean, a classic example is Lydia Thorpe, bless mm. her, talks about Aboriginal kids are still being stolen. No, there is no... Indigenous kid being stolen today. There are there are Indigenous kids, like non-Indigenous kids, being removed from unsafe homes to be put into safe caring homes. That is not stealing them. So yes, the um, stolen generation narrative is a bit of a hangover, but, but again, it's this obsession with culture. And, you know, coming back to what you were saying, you know, it, the culture shouldn't be a big thing. You put the kids in any home where there's love and care. Absolutely. You know, you might get the odd time where there's a very distinct, definite culture there, like language is a barrier. Well, then, you know, obviously you need a kid in a home where the carers speak the same language. But mm. for most Indigenous kids, uh, I mean, they have their iPads and mobile phones and that, so they, you know, they're very much into the Western culture. Mm. Um, oh, very much so. so. They, just need a, they, they just need a, a home where there's stability, love, care, nurturing, that sort of thing. But again, I emphasise, if the voice gets up, we will see more of this um, separatist approach where only Indigenous kids or ki Indigenous kids can only be placed with Indigenous carers. And that's ridiculous. I mean, it nobody would care if a um, non-Indigenous kid was placed into the, the, the care of Indigenous parents. Mm. No one would care. Mm. They would just think, you know, do, the, do those Indigenous parents provide a safe home? Great. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the cultural relativism is, is just is just absolutely heinous. Um, now, Indigenous mm. activists attempt to uh, shape this issue of the voice as one of ideology and emotion rather than pragmatism. But of course, as we know, this doesn't solve anything for Aboriginal communities. What do mm. you think needs to change in the way we nationally address the issue of Indigenous disadvantage? Okay, great question, Daisy, um, because even if no gets up, which, and I'm praying that it does, fingers crossed. Uh, we can't just sit. We can't just sit there. We then have to look at how we do um, Indigenous affairs differently, because you know, obviously, things have not been working uh, as much as we would like them to work. And this is something the Yes Camp have latched onto and said, you know, it hasn't worked, so we've got to try something new. Um, well, you can't just try anything new. You've got to try something that's, you know, has some a solid evidence base to it, and. Uh, and, you know, we, we've already said we know it works, education, employment, safe homes, that sort of thing. So to answer your question, we need, we really need, I've said this before, <coughs> political leaders with backbone, okay, uh, people who are not afraid to have the tough conversations so that we can talk openly about community dysfunction, violence and that sort of thing and not be afraid to be called racist. So we've yeah. got to address the elephants in the room. We've got to shift lower on the priority list the things we've spoken about, you know, all this culture, this obsession with culture, changing street names, the name of suburbs and debating about whether Australia Day is uh, helpful or evil or whatever. Put all that aside and just focus on the big issues which we've spoken about, having people, Indigenous people, living in areas where they do have access to employment and educational services that is school. So, you know, typically we're, we're talking about, not always, but generally speaking, the remote areas. We all, we all know that. And it is challenging to um, work in those areas because you have, it's hard to attract good staff and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, we do need to do the hard yards. Mm. And it's just become far too attractive just to go talk about... Uh, culture and ideology and this will unite the country and this is a on the right side of history and you know mm. that changes nothing nothing mm. it doesn't put doesn't put food on the table no it certainly doesn't and I'm, I'm wondering why do you think is there this obsession with culture uh, well it, it's nice to think about you know we uh 
look, I admit in an ideal world it would be great if we had Indigenous, you know, hundreds, thousands of Indigenous people uh, practising and living their traditional culture. Unfortunately, that's that's not the case. You know, mm. there's few and far between that are doing that. Um, and it's a bit like the phantom limb. You know, you cut off the limb and you like to still think it's there. Yes. We need to accept, you know, that, yes, I acknowledge colonisation. It disrupted mm. and put an end to cultural practices. And so, yes, you know, the... Um, the, the people at the time, the white people at the time, can take the blame for that, that disrupted culture. We are where we are, where we are now. There are many, many Indigenous people who are, who are living a great lives. Uh, they're living in this place we call Australia, call it a Eurocentric, westernised land, whatever you want, um, and they're doing quite well and they still call themselves Aboriginal. You know, they're not practising traditional culture uh, and they probably would, wouldn't want to even if they could. Hmm. But there is that obsession with some to not let it go. And it's so what we have today, we have this sort of pretend or what Best Price calls a Disneyland culture. <laughs> um, and the other thing, too, you know, if you cling on to this culture bit, a lot of people get, um, are able to create jobs for themselves out of that, you know, as, as cultural experts and they sit on committees as the cultural uh, expert with the cultural lens and they do, they do their cross cultural training and all that sort of thing. So, mm. uh, you know, there's a bit of self-interest there. A bit of an industry. Uh, unfortunately, it, does, it doesn't help the people on the ground. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 very um, unfortunate, I think, this sort of, you know, cultural industrial complex that's going on because it doesn't help the people on the ground. Yeah. Now, yeah. you've... And just on that point, I'm, I'm happy to say, look, mm. I'm an Aussie living in a modern world, modern home, and I'm proud of what my Aboriginal ancestors and how they live. That's how they live. I don't live like that. You know, mm. it's 2023. And, you know, you could say the same about um, with my English ancestry too. I'm not living the way my English great-great-great-grandparents were living. It's gone. Mm. We are in 2023. Exactly. We're, we're, in, a, we're in a new modern society. Uh, now, Anthony, you've, re- you've recently written, and just to quote you, you've written, I believe the number one reason... Well, why we are not seeing the gap close despite considerable investment in programs that aim to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians is because they have been cast as having vastly different needs from other Australians. But they yeah. essentially have the same fundamental needs as other Australians. Now, Anthony, the idea pushed by the left that Indigenous Australians are inherently different and fundamentally require greater assistance, well, for my money, that's blatantly quite racist, isn't it? That, that's sort of the bigotry of low yeah. expectations. Yeah, a- absolutely. And again, it's uh, clinging to the phantom limb, limb the, the phantom cultural limb, that there's still this culture there, uh, which in, you know, 95% of cases is just not the case. So we don't want to let go of that culture. And yes, we, they, you, I have the same basic fundamental needs. Uh, we need a safe physical environment. We need access to fresh food. We need to learn the skills that enable us to thrive in the environment in which we live, which is modern day Australia. Um, We need opportunities to engage in contributing to our societies, which is normally a job. Um, They are our fundamental needs. Mm. Yeah. And it's... So so, so Indigenous have them, non-Indigenous people have them. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and that needs to absolutely be recognised. I mean, um, everyone ultimately is an individual, aren't they? So, you know, by by tarring all Indigenous people with, you know, the same... Or t- tarring any community, any culture with the same brush, I think that's going to inherently uh, disadvantage and ostracise them, which is the opposite of what we want to do with Indigenous people, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We need to recognise uh, that, you know, uh, individuality there. Yes, absolutely. Now... Mm. Anthony, I've come to the conclusion, observing this voice debate, that so many people on the yes side, so many Australians, are genuinely really well-meaning. I mean, there's a lot of goodwill towards Indigenous people in Australia. Nobody thinks the current situation is acceptable in remote communities. Uh, But I find that the ones who are voting yes who are well-meaning are just really easily seduced by this rhetoric and this focus on racism and and colonisation 
as opposed to, you know, focus on real living standards, health, domestic violence and so on. How can we cut through that very emotional rhetoric and get people talking about what really matters? Okay, well, a very important thing and uh, probably the second most important thing to say in this session, the most important being get out there and vote. Don't sit back and think, you know, you've got enough neighbours who will vote no. No, you join them and vote no as well. Um, But the second most important thing is um, when you are voting, the question is not do you want to help Aboriginal people? It's not do you want to improve the living circumstances of Aboriginal people? That's not what it is. But I think a lot of people who are voting yes think that's what the question is. Okay? The question is that ambiguous thing, do you want to vote for recognition of Indigenous people in the form of this voice sort of thing? Okay, yeah. That's not the same as voting for I want to help Aboriginal people. So people need to be clear on that. Just be aware of what you are voting for. So the yes people would say, oh, yes, but uh, this this structure, this and it's, you know, it's a reform of the... Um, you know, the whole system, changing of the constitution, they'll say, oh, yes, but this voice will address those problems. It will improve the health and well-being of Indigenous people. And I say, okay, if that's the case, I will certainly vote yes, but so far you have not given me a a plan that convinces me it will improve the health and well-being of Aboriginal people. And here we are with, you know, I vote tomorrow. Someone could still do it tonight. They could show me, Anthony, here's the plan. If you vote yes, this was... This is how it will help improve the health and well-being of Indigenous Australians. I'd vote yes. Mm. But, you know, they've had, I mean, for goodness sake, if Bernie and Albanese couldn't give you that plan, I don't think anyone else can. (laughs) I think you're exactly right there. Anthony Dillon, love your commentary. It is fantastic to have you on the show tonight. Thank you so much for coming on this evening. It's been great. Thank you, Daisy. And now let's turn to the horrific events that have unfolded in Israel over the past week. On Saturday, Hamas terrorists launched a barbaric assault on the Israeli people, not on soldiers, but on civilians. The terrorist attack began when Hamas militants paraglided into an outdoor dance party, opened fire and slaughtered over 200 innocent Israelis. From then, Hamas militants broke into Israeli civilians' homes where they assaulted, tortured, raped and dismembered men, women, children, grandparents and even babies. Hamas also took about 160 people hostage, dragging them back to Gaza on motorbikes and in the backs of trucks. Currently, the total Israeli death toll stands at over 1,300 people. And I shudder to think what might be happening to the hostages under Hamas, if indeed they are still alive. It is an ungodly situation, and anyone who is not an errant psychopath should be offering a full-throated, unequivocal condemnation of Hamas. However, It seems there are more errant psychopaths among us than previously thought. Across the Western world, hordes of people in major cities were celebrating this attack on Israel, cheering on the slaughter of innocents and the barbarism directed towards those left alive. And in a monumentally shameful act, In Sydney, Australia, on the steps of the Opera House, which had been lit up in blue and white to support Israel, pro-Palestinian agitators chanted, Gas the Jews. Oh, <laughs> 
also shameful, on the streets of Lakemba in Western Sydney, Muslim leader Sheikh Ibrahim Dadun has this to say about the savagery committed by Hamas. Smiling and I'm happy. I'm elated. It's a day of courage. Despicable does not even begin to cover it. Sadly, this contempt for human life is shared by a member of the Australian Parliament. Green Senator and fervent Palestine supporter Maureen Faruqi tweeted the Parliament's announcement that Parliament House would be illuminated in blue and white, in, and white to honour Israel and captioned it with, one colonial government supporting another what a disgrace, hashtag free Palestine. What can one really say to that? Joining me now from Tel Aviv to take us through this appalling tragedy is Israeli parliamentarian Sharon Haskell. Sharon Haskell, thank you so much for coming and talking to us this evening. Um, I fear I already know the answer to this question, but what is the atmosphere in Israel like at the moment? We, we are all heartbroken. Um, this is the biggest tragedy in Israel's history. Um, what had happened is just unbelievable. This is things that we have warned and warned that our enemies are vicious uh, but these kinds of monstrous acts, I don't think many of us could even picture. Um, you need to understand this is not Hamas declaring war on Israel. These were war crimes. These were crimes against humanity. A battalion, thousands of terrorists just charging and infiltrating, invading 22 cities, towns, going from house to house massacring entire families, burning them down. There were more than 40 babies who died, burnt, beheaded. These images just can't leave us and we're absolutely devastated. This is an absolute tragedy for our people and for our country. Absolutely. I mean, there's just no words to, to, to describe the horror that, that, that has occurred. It's just atrocious. And I've heard um, many people, understandably, are describing this attack. You mentioned it is as unprecedented. I've heard people say that there's been nothing like this in Israel since, since Yom Kippur. So is, is this really unlike anything we've seen in the region over the past half century? Well, well, this is not even like Yom Kippur. I, I think you have to go back into very dark uh, in order to see such a massacre. I mean, desecrating bodies, parading them in the streets. I don't think you'll have the stomach if I'll describe you some of the sights that people who have seen horrific sights have seen. I mean, I was a, a commander in the Israeli army during the time of the Second Intifada. We had buses exploded. Uh, by suicide bombers. Uh, come near to those sites that we have seen. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't think your viewers would be able to have the stomach to actually hear some of the stuff that, that, that we're seeing here. And it, what's, what's so shameful about it, Sharon, of course, is that people around the Western world have been celebrating this attack, you know, sh shamefully in Australia where I am, I mentioned it in my intro to this segment, um, these appalling pro-Palestine protests in, in Sydney in which Hamas supporters chanted, I hate to say it, gas the Jews on, on the steps of the Sydney Opera House, which was lit up to support Israel. Um, does this reaction from people in Sydney and also in, in London and other Western cities prove that Palestine's gripe with Israel is, is not simply a turf war, but it's motivated by just rank anti-Semitism and a desire to exterminate the Jewish people? Absolutely. I mean, we have warned the world about these things that can happen. Um, uh, this is not just a war between Hamas and Israel. 
Um, the first thing is that Iran is the one that is sitting behind the planning, operating financially about this move. I mean, they are the head of the snake. They have proxies all around the Middle East creating those atrocities. I mean, Hezbollah is another proxy of them. They've been attacking us from the northern border as well in recent days. And so uh, this is not a, a, a territorial war. Okay, this is a, a religious war. This is a jihad, a holy Muslim war. This is radical Islam. This is ISIS. Those sites are ISIS sites. This is uh, a bordering uh, 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 neighbor that is an Islamic state. The the Fatha, the the Sharia laws. This is what they they acted by uh, by raping and then murdering women in front of their families, raping children. Okay, these are the acts of ISIS, and this is what we are facing. And those people who are celebrating the rape of women, how does raping a woman advance the, mm. the, the lives of Palestinians? How does beheading babies advance peace in the Middle East? This is not that. These mm. are people who are supporting a massacre, and this is a war between radical Islam and between our rest Western values of freedom, of liberty, of cherishing life, uh, uh, equality between people, freedom of religion. This is a war on our values and this is what we're facing. And we didn't want this war. We were forced up on this war. We are forced now to go into Gaza because we cannot have such a monster bordering us as the same as we've eliminated isis in the middle east we have to eliminate isis hamas in gaza and look as you've rightfully mentioned um this is radical islam we're talking about you know this isn't this isn't just a, a run-of-the-mill violent attack this is radical islam there's a whole lot of ideology behind it and the thing about radical islamists is that they have no tolerance at all for anyone who's not them, you know, not for Christians and especially not for Jews. I mean, there's that real... The most, the, yeah, the most persecuted minority in the Middle East are Christians. Israel is just in the front line. If Israel was, God forbid, ever fall, they'll be coming knocking on your doors in Australia, in Europe, in America, in Canada. They're already there. Those videos that you see, and I've seen some of these pro-Palestinian demonstrators showing on their phones to uh, supporters of Israel uh, pictures of the massacre and laughing at their face. They are already in your homes. And if God forbid Israel ever fall, they will be coming knocking on your door. We are just the front and we are uh, are are in the front of fighting for those for, for our mm. rights of life. This is a, a, a war on the right of Jews for, uh, uh, for, for life mm. and, and the values that we cherish. Mm, which Australia and so many other Western countries share, why, which is why it is so upsetting to see those pro-Palestinian uh, protests. And, you know, you've mentioned the atrocities and how, and how just barbaric it is, you know, and uh, again, that our viewers might not want to hear about it. It strikes me this is... They're, they are Hamas and radical Islamists are medieval in their barbarism, aren't they? I mean, th this is this is like when you hear stories from a thousand years ago of, of tribes massacring and annihilating each other. It's like radical Islam hasn't moved beyond its medical beyond its medieval stage, has it? But 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 they are saying that. I mean, mm. if you see all of their leadership, all of their speeches. They speak about it, about the fatha, about, mm. about, about the Sharia laws, okay? These are explicitly being told through their stories of their extremist religion. And what they did in those three days is operating and fulfilling a lot of these texts. Mm. I mean, I, I, you see some of these... Um, uh, uh, videos and they spread it on social media and you see them laughing and enjoying some of these horrendous acts. They, they, they put a woman and they circled her and they put uh, a petrol on her and they burned her alive 
and they are standing around laughing at her while she screams. Those kinds of images that they filmed and uploaded to social media to document that. I mean, when hmm. they were, were chanting, when they when they have their speeches and they speak about their these acts, I believe them and the world needs to believe them. Mm. When they go and they chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, meaning from our western border to our eastern border, Palestine will be free of Jews, meaning they will murder every single living Jew in Israel. I believe them and the world now has to believe them. Mm. And alongside those horrific support demonstration, I do want to send my gratitude and thank to the leadership of the west of, of the of the of the of the powers of the western world of of strong democracies like australia like america like european countries who are in support of the state of israel thank you so much and to the the australian community who has sent uh, 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 equipment and, and, and donations and, and have sent their condolences and text messages to our people. This is heartwarming mm. and these things uh, are, will rebuild us. Yes, well, as I, um, I said in my um, introduction to this segment, anyone who is not an errant psychopath uh, should be offering a full-throated condemnation of Hamas's actions. But uh, unfortunately, as we've seen from these demonstrations, there are obviously more uh, psychopaths amongst us than than we're led to believe. It's really, it's just so shocking. So Sharon, from from what you've told me then, the only thing we, we can really deduce that what the, the ultimate goal of Palestine is, is to literally exterminate and annihilate the, the Jewish state. Is that correct? Absolutely, and not just eliminate it, but actually murder the Jew, and they describe it. I have uh, I, I just opened a Facebook page under my name in order to uh, send a lot of videos there. One of the videos is the entire leadership of Hamas and some of their speeches in recent years speaking exactly about it, how to murder Jews, how they have to eliminate every single one of them. I mean, think about it. In 2000, this is not a territorial conflict. This is far beyond it. This is a religious extremist fight. Uh, I mean, in 2005, Israel have completely evacuated Gaza from every single living Jew. We even had to take the, the, the dead, the buried, and, and take them out of their graves and bury them back in Israel. They had a full autonomy uh, declared by the United Nations, but every single country. And instead of investing in education and in the economy and in infrastructure they have invested every single penny in war in hatred in violence i mean you know our war is not against the palestinians the palestinians after they voted hamas have become hostages and 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 and, and, and to be honest also victims of hamas as well and so we have to eliminate Hamas. This cannot continue. They cannot uh, uh, uphold any kind of power, no military power, no economical power, no facilities. They have to be eliminated the same as ISIS was eliminated. Mm. And the, the, what strikes me is that Hamas, unlike Israel, Hamas really doesn't seem to care at all about Palestinian civilians. I mean, they, they launched this atrocious, atrocious, beyond atrocious attack on Israel. They would know Israel was going to retaliate, which they have, and as a result, Palestinian civilians have, have tragically died. But Hamas doesn't seem to care about, do they? Otherwise, otherwise, they wouldn't have launched the attack on Israel in the first place. They have no care for their own people. Absolutely. Uh, uh, that's why we understand they are not deterred. I mean, uh, you need to understand um, the, the leader of Hamas, Ismail Henya, has evacuated his own personal family, including his son, two weeks ago from the Gaza Strip. And Hamas is using innocent civilian and children as a human shield. I mean, they have built their bunkers, their missile launchers, um, they, they, their headquarters in schools, in mosques, under hospitals, knowing that Israel does not want to bombard these areas. And so they are using that innocent civilian as a human shield. This is why Israel has sent 
declaration for all Gazan to completely evacuate, all innocent civilians to completely evacuate from the north of Gaza, giving them a warning in order to evacuate. But unfortunately, Hamas keeps them as hostages as well as and as human shield. Sharon Haskell, this is it's the most appalling evil that you and the people of, of Israel have suffered. Uh, I just offer my heartfelt condolences. I know they're they're just words, but I, I do offer up my prayers and my good wishes. Um, all the very best. Um, we'll be praying for you. And I, I do hope the situation can improve somehow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your support and, and your prayer and so much for your journalist work in order to bring out the truth to the world because the world has to see it. So thank you so much. And we greatly appreciate that. All the very best to you. Some interesting and perhaps not altogether unexpected news has emerged out of the United States of America. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is the nephew of President John F. Kennedy and has been doggedly vying for the top spot as Democrat presidential nominee for 2024, has sensationally ditched the Democratic Party, of which his family has been a stalwart for generations, and announced he will run for president as an independent. Independent candidate for president of the United States. That's not all. I'm here to join you in making a new declaration of independence for our entire nation. We declare independence from the corporations that have hijacked our government. And we declare independence from the Wall Street, from big tech, from big pharma, from big ag, from the military contractors and their lobbyists. We declare independence from the mercenary media that is here to, to fortify all of the corporate orthodoxies from their advertisers and to urge us to hate our neighbors and to fear our friends. He certainly gave a rousing speech and the crowd responded very favorably. Likening running as an independent to America's Independence Day of hundreds of years ago was indeed poetic, and RFK emphasized this nostalgic patriotism with a poignant reference to George Washington. In making an independent run for president, I take inspiration from the one other president who, who did not have a political party. And that president was George Washington. And his, in his farewell address, Washington issued a prescient warning about the disastrous potential of party politics. Inevitably, he said, political parties will be taken over by a cunning, ambitious, unprincipled minority who will serve the interests of the party rather than the interests of the nation and usurp for themselves the reins of government. Washington's dire prediction has certainly come true. I intend to wrest the reins of both parties and return power to the American people. Now, one would assume that, of course, RFK's independent candidacy would have the Democrats running scared, considering the low enthusiasm among Democratic voters for Joe Biden. But RFK's announcement has also given Republicans the heebie-jeebies. In fact, after his announcement, the Republican National Convention released an article entitled 23 Reasons to Oppose RFK Jr., stating there is very little daylight between RFK and a typical Democrat politician. And yet, RFK Jr. is committed to freedom of speech and relentlessly opposed COVID vaccine mandates, both positions that will appeal to Republicans, particularly those who may dislike Joe Biden but be reluctant to vote for Donald Trump, the likely Republican nominee. So what do the polls say? 
Now, while there isn't much data as of yet analyzing a potential three-way contest, an early October Reuters Ipsos poll on Biden, Trump and RFK had Trump at 33% support, Biden at 31% support, and RFK at 14%. Now, that indicates about one in seven voters would cast their ballot for RFK, which, as a starting point, is certainly not bad. So, given the public dissatisfaction with Joe Biden and the fact Donald Trump is entangled in the Democratic Party's attempts at lawfare, could this be the year an independent candidate isn't just a protest vote and really does make a difference to the American electoral landscape? Joining me to discuss all of this and then some is Washington correspondent for the Australian newspaper, Adam Crichton. Adam, it is so delightful to see you this evening. How are you? Well, thanks, Daisy. Thanks for having me. Oh, always a pleasure. Let's get stuck in. So RFK, interesting that he's running mm. as an independent. Uh, you've written that no candidate for US president, even Donald Trump during his first tilt, has endured the sort of relentless mm. unfair persecution that has dogged Kennedy's campaign for the Democratic nomination. What did that persecution look like? Yeah, certainly. I think that's true. I mean, I mean, I'd qualify that by saying uh, when I wrote that in the Australian a couple of months ago, I was talking about when Trump first entered the race back in gosh, 2015. I mm. mean, at that point, uh, Trump was definitely mocked. He was derided, but uh, nothing like what Kennedy gets right now. I guess at a, a broadly equivalent stage of the race. Uh, well, he's he's you know most of the mainstream press treats him absolutely terribly. I mean, they 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 of course uh, constantly scream anti-vaxxer, anti-vaxxer about him. Uh, which, from my investigations, is not true. I mean, he he's, he has questions about the uh, safety or testing regimes around vaccines, especially the COVID vaccines, and um, he raises some logical good points, I think. Uh, so there's that. He's he also gets attacked because he doesn't believe the uh, the Warren Commission a report regarding the assassination of his uncle. Um, he thinks the CIA had knowledge of it, was involved. And again, I think that's a reasonable argument. I mean, it's you know worth pointing out that there's still 4,000 documents that the US government will not uh, release are related to that assassination. And so that, that suggests to me that they don't want people to know something. Um, so I think it's very unfair. And I think the reason is because he challenges the establishment and you're not allowed to do that. And most media would rather just, you know, the Biden-Trump low IQ argument, you know, MAGA, you're not MAGA. I mean, it's so easy to report, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't require any fact checking, right? Um, so it makes for easy media when it's, you know, when you've got two candidates who who don't really have a lot of policy substance to talk about, but Kennedy does. I mean, he talks about policy, he talks about facts, he's very eloquent. Um, so I think he's treated very unfairly. And uh, so I'm happy he's running as an independent. Um, there was a poll that came out just a few hours ago, I think, actually a Fox poll that put him at 16%, I think, nationally, which oh, is wow. pretty good for a third-party candidate. I mean, um, Ross Perot got the highest share of the vote of any third-party candidate ever in 1992, and it was 19%. So, wow. it's, you know, it's quite conceivable that uh, Kennedy could go above 19%. It's still a year away, the election. And and I think when people actually listen to him, as opposed to what is said about him, I think that, you know, it could go higher than 16%. So, so we'll see. But, mm. yeah, he's definitely treated unfairly. Yeah, I mean, uh, that is fascinating that as a starting point, as starting point as an indie candidate, he's got 16%. And um, yes. I, I, I'd also like to state for the record that I am perfectly happy to entertain the notion that the assassination of JFK was an inside job. Um, <laughs> and I, I think if you explain it, most reasonably minded people would agree. I mean, leaders are being have been assassinated by their own for tens of thousands of years, going back to the, you know, the ancient yes. Egyptians. Yes. There's no reason that wouldn't happen nowadays. So I'm gonna I'm happy to put that on the record. I agree with <laughs> RFK. I agree with him. <laughs> now he did a great uh announcement speech, didn't he, yes. about announcing his candidacy. Uh, he spoke a lot about disentangling politics from the interests of big corporations, giving power yes. back to the American people. Now, I'm wondering, yes. 
Do you think that enough Americans will be wooed by this rhetoric or are they too caught up, unfortunately, in the cost of living crisis because so many people are struggling? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I actually went to the launch this uh, Monday. I was in Philadelphia and that's mm. where he gave that, uh, that, that speech. It was very good. Spoke for about 50 minutes. I mean, he does suffer from a throat condition, so uh, so he has quite a gravelly voice, but, I mean, that's not a problem to me. I'm quite used to it now. I think after you listen to him long enough, you get used to the voice. Um, uh, whether it's enough to to persuade people, I don't know. I think, I think people are very, uh, you know, they see themselves as Republicans or Democrats as part of their identity. I mean, it's uh, the US is very, very polarised, and I think people struggle to 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 think of politics outside that that simplistic, you know, that simplistic box, I guess, of, of you know, left wing, right wing, uh, Dem, Republican. Um, but it was a very good speech. And, you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of the Democrats say, oh, he's, you know, far right. He's, you know, going to take votes from Trump. But actually the speech was uh, you know, classically very much a left wing speech. I mean, he didn't even mention vaccines, actually, in the entire 50 minute speech. It was all about corporations, as you suggested, and their insidious influence over government and and regulators, which is very much in the vein, I suppose you'd say, more of Bernie Sanders than of mm. Donald Trump. Um, so I thought it was a left-wing speech, but but at the same time, he really talks about the Constitution a lot, about free speech, about the rights uh, that Americans, that they have uh, based on the Constitution and that they're being eroded, uh, you know, especially in the censorship regard. I mean, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, freedom of speech is under attack in the US uh, throughout COVID, obviously, many examples of people being silenced even when they were saying the truth. Um, so so I think, you know, I think I think kind of coming out of the COVID pandemic, I mean, it, it's fertile ground for him because a lot of Americans are very angry about the censorship, about, you know, the hypocrisy of, of, of the whole pandemic, the damage that was done. Um, so I think, look, I don't think it's a majority of people, but I think it's a large minority of people that, that, um, that, that will like him and that will find his message uh, very appealing. Mm. Well, look, on the subject of the gravelly voice, I quite like it. I always like a nice kind of hus husky tone. And look, yes. people, Donald Trump has a kind of gravelly voice and people don't have any That's problem true. Yeah, listening to him. So, That's um, true. yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think um, I don't think people will will have an issue with it, particularly the more you listen to him. Um, and, and look, on the subject of, of his speech and who he could appeal to, I'm fascinated on your opinion. Do you think ha he has the potential to do more damage to Joe Biden or Donald Trump should he become the Republican nominee? Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's very interesting watching the, the debate on social media about this because mm. you have very bright strategists on both sides arguing about this. And, you know, I think that suggests that we don't know the answer. I mean, it's a wild card. I mean, my sense is that he's going to, that he'll definitely take more votes from the Democrats. And I say that because of that speech he gave on Monday, which I thought was basically a left-wing speech in essence. Um, I mean, it was an old-fashioned left speech, you know, maybe someone from the 1960s or 70s who was on the left, but nevertheless, it was more left-wing. I mean, you know, for instance, I thought it was quite amusing. There was a welcome to country ceremony at the start. Oh, <laughs> right? wow. Which was, well, I mean, I mean, of course, Americans would not call it that because they don't use that phrase, but but it was an Indigenous uh, uh, song, I mean, the Native American song, uh, sang and and they said that it was their traditional land, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I mean, that that's, you know, very much what, what the, at least Australians would see as a left-wing uh, part of his campaign. Um, so, yeah, so I think it will take more from the Democrats and, indeed, there have been a couple of polls already that have suggested that's the case, that, uh, that if he runs, if he gets that 16%, it actually makes Trump um, one or two points ahead of Biden. But look, it's still a long way away. So I mean, you know, it's it's still you know thirteen months away the election. So there's there's you know there's a lot of water to go under the bridge yet. Mm, um, I mean, I'm fascinated. This is just another instalment in the uh, reality television series called American Politics. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm very interested to see the outcome, um, and who knows, maybe he'll go from strength to strength. Um, now, Adam, we have to talk about this this speakership race, if you will. Matt Gaetz yes. bumped the speaker, <laughs> yes. McCarthy, last week. That was a big to-do. It looked like for mm -hmm. a minute it was going to be Jim Jordan. Then it looked like it was going to be Steve Scalise. Uh, what on earth is going on here? Yeah, look, it's a good point. I mean, I thought the removal of, of Kevin McCarthy was pretty silly. I mean, yeah, he was a very effective speaker, very articulate, uh, a very likeable guy. And in my view, they're probably going to end up with someone inferior. So so mm -hmm. what happened is is the Republicans, I think, uh, 
There's about 220 of them in the lower house, in the House of Reps. They have a a slim a majority. It's a 435-seat chamber. Uh, and they they voted 113 to 99 within their caucus, if you like, to support Steve Scalise, which is only a narrow victory within their caucus. But, but of course, to actually become Speaker, you, you need the entire chamber uh, to vote in a majority for someone, and that needs to get to 217 votes. It's pretty obvious all the Democrats will will always oppose a Republican. Mm. So so the Republicans have to be united, and they're certainly not united at the moment. And and from the reports in the last few hours, it seems like there are at least seven or eight um, Republicans who've said that they won't vote for Steve Scalise on the floor, and wow. that basically means that he can't become Speaker. So, so there is no obvious alternative. Right now I think the reporting is he's actually tonight talking to these seven or eight holdouts to try to convince them. Mm. But, but you know, it's interesting, a lot of Democrat politicians have been tweeting that, uh, you know, five, you know, five Republicans should join with them and and vote in their, their leader, <laughs> um, who is Harkin Jeffries. And, and, you know, honestly, I wouldn't rule it out mm. because, you know, they make the case that they are completely united behind their leader, and they are, at least in public, um, and so it would only take four furious Republicans to say, we're sick of this, we're not going through 15 rounds of voting, it's embarrassing, we're just going to support the Democrat. I mean, I think this would be a very bad outcome, but <laughs> it, it, it could happen. Um, so, mm. you know, so I think they've got to sort their stuff out. But, I mean, it's you know, it's also a reminder that the Republican Party is you know, much more divided than the Democratic Party, at least publicly, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's a broader church. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely true. Um, so I don't think the division is necessarily bad, but it's it's come at a bad time because Congress has a lot to do and, uh, you know, at the moment it can't do anything. I mean, you know, the House of Reps is is paralysed, so, so there's not going to be anything happening until it's solved. Mm, it is. It is just. Oh gosh, I'm just very, very glad that I don't live in America right now. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. not not a great fan of Australian politics and most politicians, but oh, you, sometimes you gotta you, you gotta cut your losses. At least we don't have that kind of drama uh, down under. My goodness. Um, very now, true. Yeah, very, very true. Now, you recently wrote a really interesting article um, in which you dissected the modern paradigm that is the political spectrum. I mean, to quote you, you wrote. Ah uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a great article. You wrote. You, Thank you. <laughs> That's all right. You've probably heard Donald Trump described as right wing or far right even. But what does this actually mean? It turns out very little, given the former US president advocates policies that only a few years ago were considered left wing, making a mockery of the idea that some timeless un un unidimensional spectrum informs us how we should understand politics. Um, RFK made a similar point in his speech. Um, do you think that the left-right dichotomy has become now a really antiquated lens through which to analyse politics? Yeah, look, I think it has, and I think it's worse than that. I mean, it's not only antiquated and wrong, I think it's very damaging because it, it kind of naturally polarises people and, it you know, it, 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 it puts forward the idea, which is false, that there is this one dimension, left and right, and then you move left or you move right. But that makes no sense for a whole host of issues. I mean, you know, take abortion, for instance. I mean, it's not it's not clear uh, from first principles whether that would be a left-wing or a right-wing position. And you can make the same for foreign aid, uh, you know, for support of wars, um, for fiscal policy. You know, the reality is that, that life is complicated and politics is complicated and and the two major parties in the US and in Australia, they are really just a hodgepodge uh, uh, mm. set of ideas or policies which don't necessarily, uh, which don't necessarily intellectually correlate with each other at all. I mean, it's really more subject to what the leader thinks at the time. And you know, you mentioned Donald Trump, and you know, I mean, frankly, in a traditional sense, he's just as left wing as he is right wing. I mean, he's he wants to increase uh, tariffs by ten percent, which is historically a left wing position to to protect uh, domestic industry. That's a very anti-globalisation position. That's something that in the 1980s leftists would have supported. Um, and you could say the same on his foreign policy, relatively isolationist, which mm. again in the early 2000s is something people on the left would have supported. So so this idea of left and right, it's extremely contingent, You know, not only on the time, but also the country in question. 
And and I think when journalists describe politicians, and actually I've, I've, I've tried to stop doing it myself because it's an easy trap to fall into. You know, someone's left wing, someone's right wing, but you have to ask them, what does that really mean? What am I really adding by saying that? Yeah. I mean, does it actually tell us anything about them? I mean, are they right wing, are they small government or are they right wing, are they big government? Those are two completely different positions and yet we use the same word, so it's clearly a stupid word. Mm. Um, you know, it's you know it's more helpful, I think, or it's it's more accurate to say someone is an extreme Democrat or an extreme Republican. At least that you know that gives you a context of what they actually believe in. You know, rather than this left right nonsense. Um, mm. So I think you know I think we need to move away from it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, look, I, I think you make a fascinating point. And yeah, yes, on Donald Trump, um, economically, um, I mean, you can say Donald Trump is is many things. I mean, I, I'm a, a fan, as you know, but one thing he's certainly not is a neocon. Uh, he's very, well, very, no, very, yeah. No, no. And also, I mean, Donald Trump was a Democrat for many years. Right? Mm. I mean, as I, I think he was in the Democrat Party for many years. And and, you know, he's also, you know, he's a he's a New York real estate developer. I mean, you know, he you know he's moved amongst very liberal people, wealthy liberal people, for his entire life. So, so this idea that he's sort of, you know, some hardcore social conservative, I think, is just nonsense. Mm. And I would describe him as a centrist. He's very much as well. He's a centrist populist, really. That's what he is. And he's a very effective one, actually. I mean, I'm slightly changing the subject here, but, you know, I mean, for someone who's been indicted 91 times, he's, he's, he's very popular. He's so very he must popular. be doing something right politically. <laughs> uh, but this idea that he's an extremist is just, you know, complete nonsense. I mean, you know, there are extremists out there, but it's not Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I would uh, completely agree with you on on that point. Uh, he is Donald Trump is comparatively me very moderate compared to a lot of Republican politicians, and it's always infuriated me when people just yeah, jump to sure, that sure. right. Well, oh, he's a right wing extremist. No, he's not. Look, <laughs> watch a speech, read something, read a statement. I know. Adam, I know. exactly. This, yeah, absolutely. Adam Crichton, you are delightful and fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Thank you. and I do hope we see you again soon. Thanks very much, Daisy. I enjoyed it. Well, that's all we have time for on the Daisy Cousins Show tonight. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed presenting it. Make sure you tune in next week and every week to ADH-TV. I'll be right here. Good night, world. I'll see you next time.